So I was thinking of our title from last week, French Me Baby. <laughs> and I was thinking, uh, how many uh, nationalities are there that where the, uh, the nationality sounds like a verb in English? Yeah, what like other countries French. can you use as a verb? I, I thought of uh, Dutch. There's a, there's a lot of them for them. Dutch me. And uh, a possibility is tie to tie. And tie me. Um, Ooh, that's... Philip and I thought maybe uh, Filipino could work too. I don't know. Filipino? You know? Yeah, to be Filipino. He, he was Filipinoed. I don't know. It's something Filipino. <laughs> hmm. I don't know. It brings kind of interesting a, possibilities. It's got French. It's a. It's an interesting word. Okay. Oh yeah. well. Well, hopefully that title got us some downloads. And, yeah, it looks uh, like it might have. We'll have okay. to think of one for this episode too, which is episode sixteen. If you haven't of, listened to it yet, uh, it's an episode for lovers. Episode for lovers, <laughs> yes. French me, baby. French me, baby. Episode 15 of Adult Music. Right. And this is episode 16 of Adult yeah. Music, the podcast with music for the mature mind. I'm your co-host, Russ, here with French Mike. me, baby, Mike. Yeah, well. <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to have uh, we're gonna have a little French and some there's other... No, there's no baby here for me to French with. Oh, I'm, so, I'm, sorry I'm sorry to hear to that. Say. I can send yeah. one over for you. So am I. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're going to have a little French and we're going to have uh, a little Italian and uh, some other Actually, things. Actually, today to we're going to have uh, kind of split nationalities. And we've got a lot Ooh, of... Uh, that, that might be our title, split nationalities. We'll have to see. Yeah. We'll because have to see we have, how it all um, turns out. We have a French-American harpsichordist. And we have yeah. a British Italian singer, and we have um, well, we'll get to that. Well, I have a I have a uh, ind yeah. indeterminate background jazz thing too, so it'll be interesting. Okay. It's going to be very yeah, international. Well, I, think we, mix. I think we have our uh, I think we might have our title. That's right. Before we get uh, rolling, though, into this episode, I want to remind our listeners that uh, in the episode description. You're going to find links to Spotify and Apple Music for all the music we'll discuss. And at the top of the description is a link to the full episode playlist. That's all the music in one place on our preferred streaming platform, Deezer, where you can also follow us at username Adult Music Podcast. Now, if you can't see the full description or the list of everything on your app, because they all differ, uh, please check us out on our host site, Podbean, where you can see everything clearly and catch all the links. And if you enjoy the podcast, please follow it or subscribe on whatever app or platform you're listening to us on. Uh, and if you could give us a ranking or take a few seconds to write a review, it's going to help us get listed in the browsing category recommendations, which will help us grow our audience. We'd really appreciate that. And uh, if you'd like to contact us directly with any comments or questions, uh, please don't hesitate. Our email address is adultmusicpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. And we'd love to hear from you. Yeah, and in fact, it's listed on the Podbean website. Yeah, it's on so the you Podbean. You can get it there. Yeah, check yeah, out Podbean. We've heard, we've heard from a few people. It's we've got nice. some interesting comments, that's right. And yeah. uh, we've got some, well, I'm not going to give it away, but the next couple of weeks are going to have some really interesting things happening here. Yeah, so some stay excitement tuned. excitement happening at Adult Music. Yeah. Adults uh, want to have fun, too. We do. Fun isn't just for the kids. We're having fun. We're still kids right? at heart, but yeah, yeah, we live in the adult world, so. 
Yeah. Oh, by the way, just for listeners who want a little insight into how the uh, the podcast um, <laughs> operates, generally after we uh, finish recording, we sit around for like anywhere from 10 to 30 minutes trying to figure out a title for that week's podcast That's right. and often don't come up with one until the next morning. Yeah. You know, we don't stay up all night. I mean, you know, but uh, sometimes we have title yeah. regret, not that our title was bad, but we thought of an even better one. Yeah, that uh, happened once, but that's okay. We'll yeah, save that one that's for okay. that. I one know which one you're again. talking about. It'll that's come right. up again, definitely. We'll definitely yes. use that one. Okay. All right. So as we usually do, we start things out chronologically. So I think we're going to go to the Wayback Machine. and Kind of. Uh, yeah. Kind of. Not as not way too back as Joscan this week, but... Uh, yeah. Not that far we're back. back. in back to Baroque. Pre-piano days. Baroque era. Anyway. Pre-piano days. In fact, we've got a magnificent instrument to listen to on this recording. This is a recording um, by Justin Taylor. He was a French-slash-American harpsichordist. Um... And uh, it's called La Famille Rameau. Now, <laughs> if you if you go to Wikipedia and you look up Justin Taylor, uh, what comes up is uh, Justin Taylor is a fictional character from the American-Canadian Showtime television series Queer as Folk. Well, oh. we are not talking about that Justin Taylor. That's a, different, <laughs> that's a different Justin Taylor, yeah. Yeah, and so is Justin Taylor, businessman, the American businessman who also comes up on Wikipedia. Uh, Justin Taylor, the harpsichordist, doesn't seem to have a Wikipedia page, which I'm kind of uh, disappointed about. Uh, get on that, Wikipedia. I guess what they're going to tell me is that I should write it, but I don't know enough about him, actually. Yeah. Anyway... Uh, Justin Taylor has released, this is La Famille Rameau, is his um, third release for Alpha Records. And uh, the previous two were, well, the first one was pretty excellent. It was all Scarlatti sonatas. And then there were George Ligeti's, the 20th century composer George Ligeti's, very bizarre. That's uh, a big three, leap. That's a big leap three, in material. Th- a big leap in time, too. But yeah. his three, um, his three, um, harpsichord pieces that he he wrote for the instrument which are really interesting uh one of them is a i can't remember the names of them but one of them is called hungarian rock and that's pretty cool you don't really hear a a harpsichord you know kind of piece like that very often and there's one i think called continuum which is what that album is named after uh which is just this kind of this really high speed sort of like um arpeggiated kind of you know, uh, piece. I think it's, a, it's an arpeggio study. After that, he did a um, an album called La Famille Forcaré. Now we did Forcaré's um, music last week when we did Forcaré Unchained, right? Yes. Uh, but that was Antoine. That was Antoine Forcaré, the father. Um, he uh, featured the entire Forcaré family on that one. That was a really magical recording. Highly recommended if you were like uh, the harpsichord and want to hear that. Anyway, he today he this week he goes for um, La Famille Rameau. Now, uh, Jean Philippe Rameau is the most famous Rameau, a very famous um, uh, you know composer for the harpsichord. And uh, his if you if you follow this repertoire, uh, these works are pretty. Some of these his works are pretty well known, and there are one or two of them on this album. Uh, but it also features works by the rest of the. Um, well, not the rest, but you know, a few other members of the Rameau family who we've never, I've never heard of before. So this is kind of interesting uh, discovery for me, as well as um, two uh, homages, okay, uh, to the great composer, considered to be the greatest keyboard composer ever, I guess at that time. Okay, they're certainly he's certainly in a crowded field these days. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so we have um, 
Justin Taylor playing this magnificent instrument. Um, it's the harpsichord that's in the Chateau of Assas in the Occitanie region of southern France. It dates from the first 30 years of the 18th century, so it's 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 not a copy. It's the, the original one, obviously restrung. I mean, and, you know, and the Rameau himself may have played it. We don't know. Okay, but it's wow. that old. It's old enough for him to have played it if he was there. Okay. Now, this instrument makes this really gorgeous, chimey sound. And it also seems to have like a mute or, or a damper or something. Not a pedal, but like um, there's a there's some way to quieten the strings that where you can do it without making any noise. I've I've played harpsichords before, not professionally, of course. I just happen to be lucky enough to. They'll often have like two keyboards, one's loud and one's quiet. Right. Or there'll be some kind of like little stick that you pull out that kind of makes the uh, only different strings get struck or things like that. I'm really curious about how this um, this instrument works because uh, there was some really startling quietening of the uh, material incidentally if you don't if you're not familiar with the harpsichord it, it really only makes one sound you can't make it get louder or softer unless you have that feature built into the instrument a plectrum pops out when you press the key and it plucks the string like a guitar right and so you, and you it always kind of plucks it with the same right. force so it always has the same uh um uh you know sort of there's um, no soft and volume. loud in the yeah. initial uh yeah Plucking, that's right. Right, that's right. And uh, it's kind of, you can't play it. Harpsichord and piano also are very different. Piano you can play with your fingers, but the harpsichord really is played with the wrist. Okay, you got to be using your your wrist a lot. You're jumping, jumping around a lot on that. So when you hear somebody really racing on the harpsichord, that's a pretty impressive feat. Also, yes, he these, does here, yes. Yeah, the keys are really tiny too. I don't know how people play those. Okay, anyway. Uh, he doesn't waste any time uh, going, getting right to uh, the great one himself, Jean-Philippe Rameau, the, uh, the great one. The first piece, Le Tendre Plainte, okay, which is a pretty famous work. Uh, it's, it, it is a uh, tender kind of, um, you know, plaint, I guess, I guess you, I guess mm. you would say. Um, let, me, let, me, let me actually look this up to make sure. Okay, a plaint is a lamentation or a complaint, a moan or something like that. Okay, so tender complaints, let's say. It's very chimey and slow, and you get to just luxuriate. Luxuriate. How do you say that? Luxuriate. Luxuriate. Mm. Luxuriate. Okay, in the uh, beautiful sound of this instrument. Okay, and when that ends... The uh, there's no gap between uh, unless of course you're listening on streaming because there might be a gap on that. It could but, be. You know, if you have a CD, because it, it goes right into this, it just explodes into the Cyclops, which is a uh, means the Cyclops, a very famous work, and it kind of it's kind of downward arpeggio. It's kind of I I imagine depicts the Cyclops from Greek mythology lumbering towards. This was Someone. one of my favorite mm -hmm. pieces. This is like, yeah. I called it a feverish. It mm. it sort of invoked in me the feeling like, you know, when you wake, if you've got a, a flu yeah. or some kind of virus and you wake and you're sort of delirious and things are cascading at speeds mm -hmm. that make you nervous. That's uh, what this piece, uh, I was rather <laughs> amazed by the fluidity that uh, he yeah. plays the harpsichord here. It's intense and fast. And uh, I thought, wow, this really, uh, be it's a delirium of uh, sounds here. So, 
Yeah, what's also startling, it's hard to say whether it's the, it's probably a combination of all three, the instrument, the the artist playing the instrument, which is Justin Taylor, or the recording, but uh, the, every note just stands out on its own. It's pretty amazing. It, it also, on the harpsichord, the way, you know, the timing with which you press down the notes can kind of make it slightly clearer or blurry. It's, it's a funny instrument. Like, you know, you can, there are effects you can get on it depending on, uh, and they're all kind of have to do with timing, but the, uh, the sound of this instrument was so beautiful. Everything was Mm -hmm. really clear and the various lines, really amazing. Um, also the, uh, startling, um, mute effect happens for the first time on this album in this piece. Um, I was like, whoa, what happened? I thought I had lost my sound for a minute there, but uh, for a, it, only, it only happens for a bar. But you'll notice it, it kind of, if you listen. It kind of, um, yeah, it's, it, was, it was pretty surprising. I've never heard that on a harpsichord before. I was wondering what, what there is on the harpsichord that allows him to do that. Okay, next we have a transcription called uh, La Ramo, okay? Named after himself. <laughs> I wrote a piece. It's named after me. <laughs> <laughs> and uh it's also very a really explosive piece too so these really uh these are pretty impressive so you've heard um some of the best music on this recording but uh the family doesn't really let us down here first we have a uh, claude ramo he is um jean-philippe's younger brother by six years and uh there's a very short menuet here called Menuet Barosse. It's beautifully articulated, nice counterpoint, which again is very, very clear. Uh, counterpoint, by the way, is note against note, so you're hearing several melodies at once, and they're very easy to distinguish on this recording. That's not always the case. All right, it's. I guess it's beautifully played, beautifully mic'd. Can't. I can't praise this enough. This is so good. If you like harpsichord music, I know some people don't. Okay. Without interruption, we go into a piece called La Poule, which means the hen, and we hear this right away. And not only that, but he sort of, I'm sure this isn't in the score. I'm sure he, he seems to um, um, kind of alter the, uh, the rhythm enough so that you know that you're listening to a hen clucking. Yeah, this okay. is a very playful one, I noted. I, I enjoyed yeah. it a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it goes kind of like, buck, buck. You know, this kind of yeah. <laughs> you can hear that. It's very easy to notice. Um, by the way, anyone out there who wants to become a music teacher, uh, work on your hen clucking impression. You will have to use it in class often if you're teaching music appreciation. <laughs> I I know from experience. All right. Okay. By the way, under those notes, um, by the way, if you have the score, uh, Remo writes the words "coco, coco, coco, coco." die under the notes okay so you know that it's a hen clucking okay all right after that we get um a piece an homage the first of the two homage well i guess yeah the first of the two homages on this is by jean-francois tapre uh this piece is called les sauvages which is um a piece by rameau that he has um written a set of variations for uh so we hear that and that's um pretty um catchy okay it's a catchy tune kind of like the stuff of street fair as i wrote down it kind of sounds like a music box sort of uh, an effect or something you'd hear i guess i don't know if anybody could even imagine this walking down the the street with an organ grinder in the 19th century if i i like putting myself my mind back in time to just kind of figure out how things to imagine how things were um i think a lot of people sort of imagine that the world was always like it is today except without the internet 
Yeah, so everybody thought the same, <laughs> but it's it's just not the case. No, it was much more interesting back then. Maybe. Well, you, I guess because you were pretty much going to die sooner than you are now. Yeah. You know, every illness is possible. And there was no death. Google to look stuff up on, so you had to just go had to read out a book. and experience it. Had to, yeah. had to read a book. In order to read a book, you had to know how to read, which is also another issue. But uh, <laughs> that's, another, that's another podcast. All right, so this that's an homage to Remote and a delightful one it is. Next comes uh, Jean-Philippe again. He really gets the lion's share of the um, pieces on this disc. Le, le triolet. This is a, a triolet is a medieval verse form, uh, and so it's kind of got a poetic feeling to it. And the music is, in fact, poetic, tender, and melancholy, as people in this era liked. Poetic Poetry and melancholy kind of went together. In this era, and apparently in the medieval era as well. Okay, this is a nice little piece. Okay. Next comes Claude Francois Rameau. Uh, he was Jean Philippe's eldest son. Okay. His piece, uh, La Fauquerie, by the way, uh, is it refers to uh, Fauquerie, you know, the uh, composer we talked about last week. Yes. So he's kind of. Uh, it's 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 a pretty lively Italian rhythm, and as we talked about last week, for Carré, a uh, kind of combined French and Italian style. So that that uh, uh, that uh, um, you know, accounts yeah, for merge the aesthetics of both of these. Yeah, uh, it's really nice, kind of and things. it's way too short. I kind of wish it was longer. It's only like a minute and a half. Okay, next some very famous Jean Philippe Rameau pieces. The first one is L'Egyptienne, which is the uh, um, it doesn't mean an Egyptian. It kind of means a gypsy dancer. Um, the uh, the gypsies, the uh, Romani people, uh, originally had said to Europeans that they were from Little Egypt, so they got called Egyptian. You know, kind of not Egyptians, but they kind of the word gypsy comes from Egypt. In fact, so it's it has something to do with that. But anyway, this is this piece uh, is is supposed to give you the image of a uh, gypsy girl dancing. Yeah, sort okay. of a finesse and speed in the uh, wrists here. This is pretty a impressive. Bit of, bit of exoticism in there too. Mm. Um, uh, think Esmeralda in the Hunchback of Notre Dame, okay, or um, yeah, Hunchback of Notre Dame, known as Notre Dame de Paris in French. <laughs> they had to put the Hunchback in there. He's not the main character. That drives me crazy. <laughs> there are a lot of main characters. It's like but his War face rings a bell, right? What was that? He's not the main character, but his face rings a bell. His face rings a bell. <laughs> oh, so does it. <laughs> Oh, man. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, speaking of which, I think Notre Dame Cathedral is reopening or has, um, I, I've heard oh, really? that somewhere. Mm. Yeah. Okay. We need a, yeah. Okay. After that, we get our first of the um, Baroque dances, the Allemande, which is kind of a slow, stately dance. Usually, this starts a suite of dances in box music, especially. Um, I hadn't heard this particular one before because with Rameau, I, people usually record the... Um, the titled pieces, and these are kind of um, just dance dances. There are lots of different ones in different keys. Um, this one is, oh, it doesn't say, oh, in me, do, re, mi, that's E. Alamande and me. Yeah, I, this yeah, one I like, yeah. I really enjoyed this one. It, it's um, yeah. it's melancholy and mournful, uh, very Emotional. It has a nice kind of like swinging to motion yeah. to it too, like rocking sort of. Yeah, I like this and one it, a lot. It sticks in it sticks in the mind, and it's got it's also kind of these kind of pieces are very satisfying because they have a predictable form, so you really feel secure where you know where that it's going to end in a certain way or it's going to go in a certain way, and the question is really what's going to happen 
in the actual piece. Right. Uh, so this kind of made me feel good uh, hearing it too. I liked it a lot. I'm going to have to remember, make a mental note of that one. Um, incidentally, uh, one of the things, Rameau being a French, um, you know, you know, composer of the Baroque era, the French, of course, they're, they're really good at record at um, composing to timbre. And one of the, um, this music wasn't played on a piano for a long, long time, but recently pianists have been taking it up um, with success, I should add. But it's they, they do sound kind of more idiomatic on the harpsichord. So it's best to hear these works on the harpsichord, although there are um, good um, you know piano records of these two. I think Angela Hewitt made a really good one. And some other guy, I can't remember his name now. <laughs> oh, I'm the worst. Anyway, next is uh, Lazare Rameau, the son of the younger brother... Okay. He is the son of... <laughs> Let me see if I can figure this out in my head. Okay. Jean-Philippe's younger brother, Claude, is this is um, his son in a second marriage. Okay, so it's his younger brother, Claude's son. But from his second marriage. From Claude's second marriage. Anyway, he's in the family. That's what what's important here. Uh, this work has a different, a really different texture from its surrounding works and really stands out. There's some nice programming here. It's a sonata, first of all, the only one we have on the um, recording. Now, a sonata in the Baroque era just would have meant a, a piece that isn't sung, that's played. Uh, it didn't have the meaning that it had in, like, when Haydn and Mozart came along, when it suddenly became um, two themes or, you know, that get developed and repeat at the end. All right. So... Uh, this, in fact, has a uh, rondo theme to rondo, it. It just keeps right, repeating. Yeah. A rondo, in, um, it's an Italian word. It means round. And if you know what an English round is, uh, it means that theme just keeps coming back. Right. So a way to think about this is um, the, the way I always taught this in class was, I think uh, actually Robert Greenberg said something like this too, um, that you, you have, you know, the rondo theme is like your home. And then like you have like a departure from that. So that'd be like going to the store. And then you, what do you get in the store? You bring it back home, so you're back at the Rondo theme. And you go to the post office next, and you know that would be like a, a totally different, unrelated theme that you heard than you heard before. And then you go back home. You just keep repeating to the Rondo. That's what it means. It goes around. Okay, uh, the Rondo theme, of course, has to always be catchy, and this one is again another charming music box quality to it. Um, and it's especially magical when Taylor, Justin Taylor, our um, harpsichordist, uses the mute. Okay. Next, we get to Jean-Philippe Rameau again. Uh, he's going to finish off most of the program. Uh, La, Le Rappel des Oiseaux. So the, um, you know, the, uh, the birds, uh, the, um, how, how would I say this? I don't know. Okay, Rappel des Oiseaux. A call to action for birds, basically. Okay, the calls get more insistent as the piece progresses and the harmony becomes more thickly layered. And then we get three formal dances, an allemande, a courant, a saraband, which I really loved. The saraband is a very stately slow dance, considered to be erotic by the um, people in the Baroque area. It was banned in several places in Europe for being a little too... Uh, to um, you know, suggestive. Um, though I'm sure it was nothing like uh, Cardi B's WAP, but um, it must have been desensitized because I didn't make any erotic notes about this. Yeah, point, you know? it's. I think it, it's the dance, not the music that was erotic. Right. I think. Right. Yes, the. Um, but There's it was, no video you know, for I mean, this you got these one, people so. wearing like hoop skirts and big, right. you know, dresses and stuff. So there was whatever suggestion you could draw out of that. I mean, these people were very different than we were. 
than we are. Yeah. Well, okay, you but know. beautifully performed here, and I really liked that piece a lot. Yeah. And then it ends with a gavotte and a double. And um, I like this one a lot. The uh, yeah. the left hand lines in this are really amazing. Uh, the counterpoint yeah. and uh, yeah, um, yeah. We should mention this. Uh, this um, harpsichord has some technique. Okay, yeah. uh, I would say, by the way. I would say that this is one of the, if not the, best harpsichord recording that I've ever heard, or certainly one of the best. But there's a problem. Okay, the the very last work on the piece uh. is uh, Debussy's Hommage à Rameau. Okay, which is a very famous piece from his Image Book One, and it's played on an Erard piano from the 1890s. Okay, Justin mm. Taylor playing the instrument. Uh, also. A period piece, um, 1890s piano. Now, we heard this already earlier in one that Proust um, Salon uh, CD right. that um, Tanguy de Villancourt played and with um, his, you know, the violin and piano one. All right. And um, unfortunately, Justin Taylor is not really a, a pianist. I mean, he plays it well. It's fast and it's kind of, he's kind of heavy handed as a pianist. Um, this piece has a lot of poetry to it, and it's uh, been well served by a lot of other pianists, among them um, Jean-Flamme Bavouzet, who we both really like. Yeah. Um, but here, it comes across heavy-handed and a little um, unsubtle, shall we say. It was interesting to hear, though. I've never heard it played this way before. Uh, the lines, I think um, Taylor is trying to connect the uh, melodic lines a lot more than other pianists do. Um, the more poetic pianists like to let the, uh, the sound you tell the story that the, the sonority the timbre okay yeah, this, well, this piano doing... is is very i mean it it's it's an old piano it has a very dark sound so yeah. it doesn't really have a lot of overtones it's um sounds like it's got a blanket over it or something you know so yeah but i think that might have been the uh the sound of the time yeah i'm sure right? it was yeah yeah so but th this performs i thought uh, the the problem okay the it's it's not a bad performance i guess i thought it was heavy handed but the problem is with the uh the exciting and the gentle and the um just this um you know compared to what we've we've already heard this really just kind of lands with a thud i felt like okay so i didn't think it was i mean i understand why he put it there it's an homage you know it's it has to do with ramo he wanted to include it but i really feel like this would have been better as a harpsichord only recording i mean you could program it out if you like i'm, I'm perfectly happy to yeah. hear it but it just kind of leaves you, you know the, the whole cd's over and you're not really floating on a cloud when it ends but you should be this is an excellent album if for harpsichord fans yeah and if you want to try it out if you're not a harpsichord fan try it out this is really good i think uh I wrote lots of interesting and entertaining pieces. Uh, however, it's a lot of, this is a big harpsichord sandwich here, 78 minutes of harpsichord, uh, which might be a, a bit much. So you might want to break it up and listen to a few at a time. Yeah, uh, that is a lot for seasoned pros like it. me too. You know, <laughs> one timbre, one instrument uh, for more than an hour, it can sort of, uh, your sensitivities can be uh, diminished. Uh, so you might want to, uh, spread it out over a few listens so that you're attentive to the subtleties because there are a lot of uh, interesting things to listen to uh, yeah. on this recording. Yeah, it's a big project. I'd love to hear this instrument live, actually, um, which oh, I'll probably yeah. never get the chance to do. This particular instrument, it sounds beautiful. Now, one thing you have to understand also about harpsichord recordings is they never sound like a real harpsichord. Harpsichords are quiet instruments. And um, the, the microphone is, uh, is obviously put into the um, harpsichord. So it's kind of like... The sound you're hearing is what you would hear if you were to stick your head into the um, yeah. into the yeah. instrument, all right? Because it's a very quiet 
they're very quiet instruments. So I, I am curious to know what this uh, instrument would sound like in a concert hall. By the way, if you ever go to a harpsichord recital, <laughs> it they're pretty interesting. Like Everybody it, has yeah. to be really, really quiet. It's yeah. kind of nice if you like if you like quiet and you can, you need you need peace. Go to a harpsichord concert. <laughs> Everybody's like on pins and needles. Oh, we got to be quiet to hear the sound. Okay, there we go. Highly recommended, I would say. If um, a lot of fun, yeah. The material interests you, yes. You know, if I ever interviewed a harpsichord player, I think the first question I would ask him is, do people ask you to play the Adams Family theme a lot? <laughs> I, I bet they do. They might, yeah. I bet. Da-na-na-na. With the snaps and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. All right. So, onwards. Okay, yes. our second classical recording is... <laughs> I'm still thinking of the Adams Family. The Adams Family, yeah. <laughs> All right. The se- our second recording is a um, a recording. Uh, it's Beethoven again. This is again the, more uh, Beethoven. Why? More Beethoven. Why? There might be. There might still be more coming. I got. I'll tell you about this later. All right. It depends on whether I want to. go Why for record this, this again? That's what we have to talk about. Well, hmm. Well, okay. There's. There are. Okay, well, the reason I listen to them is. There's a particular reason, okay, for this one. Okay, so this is uh, Symphony Number no. Three, Eroica. Yes, lo- biggest, longest symphony ever composed up to that time, and then of course Be- Beethoven's second longest symphony. When he finally got to the ninth, that one was longer than this. So this was like a a game changing work when it was written in 1803. It's really famous. It's very long. It's got a lot of themes. Beethoven's kind of heroic kind of quality comes out for the first time, something that he would really make uh, a feature of his music. Um, and um, he was going deaf at this time, too. This is where, around the time he learned about his oncoming deafness. And um, this is performed by um, Francois Xavier Roth and Le Siecle. He's conducting Le Siecle. It's a French orchestra. Now, Roth and Le Siecle kind of go together. They, re- they, they release a lot of music together. And for me, uh, I'm, I, they kind of make me feel... I listen to all of their recordings. I just yeah, like this is, um, them. Harmonia Mundi, the, right? Yeah. The, re- the thing I like, the, it kind of reminds me of those movies. The, the, their partnership kind of reminds me of those movies from the um, 50s and 60s directed by Bergman or Kurosawa or Ozu, where they have the same actors in every movie. Right, you know, just playing different, and you kind of get the feeling that you have the, this this group just kind of going through the repertoire that they choose and uh, giving their um, take on it. Now, the um, Le Siecle is a period instrument orchestra, so that means you're going to hear gut strings, you're going to hear, um, um, you know, string sections that, and really, especially brass sections that don't blend well together, and that's actually turns out to be a strength. Okay, there's yeah, no real that's what made gloss. it interesting for me to yeah. uh, hold my attention to listen to another recording of this uh, work. Yeah. Okay, and it's also I'm always curious to know, but for me, it's the personalities. It's like what what are people like that I like going to say about this work? That's why I listen to them. Okay, now. Is it should this be your go-to um, Beethoven Eroica? Well, maybe. And let me kind of get into this a little bit. Um, the, the the two f- very famous opening chords usually yes, just that's where you're going to hear it right away. Yeah, yep. they usually come out of the orchestra like cannon shots, bum, like bum, bum, yeah, bum, and then the music starts. But that doesn't happen here. No, they're spread out. 
It's kind of like a you hear this kind of like approach this the pro the strings kind of approach. It's really weird. I was kind of like, yeah. whoa, okay. So this is gonna say something, you know, about yeah, this. right from the start. It's something different. Yeah. Um, the other thing to know about um, it's it's believed. I'm not you know I haven't done enough research to know you know if this is actually true or not, but it's believed that I don't know when vibrato started, but it was believed that orchestras played without vibrato back in the early days. So you're hearing strings with uh, no vibrato on them. So it's just like an sound as opposed to like a kind of kind of thing. Okay. Now that kind of, that kind of sort of approach to the chord before it ends, it kind of softens the chord a bit. And I felt like that really set the tone for this entire 50 minute work. The, um, um, the um, darker elements of the score. Now, this is a big heroic work. There are dark sections in it. Um, usually, composers will um, you know, really pull them out and kind of like make you feel them. They can kind of come bursting out of your stereo and you're hiding behind the couch. But that that doesn't happen here. It, it kind of the the whole sort of work, and especially the the first movement, which is kind of the sort of the the more like contrast between light and dark comes across more on the light side it airs on the light Fresh side it's light interpretation yeah that's how yeah, i thought it's, yeah. yeah it's it's actually kind of breezy now it's really enjoyable i have to say but i don't know that that's the way this piece should be performed well um or at least not your definitive uh, recording of it but still i enjoyed listening to this in spite of that it was kind of a new well, i don't want to say new take it, it was a different take on yes. it on on the work yeah the sforzare is like a lot of times like the bomb 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 when the the rhythm breaks down and you just keep hearing these really mm -hmm. loud chords um it doesn't really come it, it doesn't come across as like a breakdown it's just kind of you, the pulse keeps going and you kind of don't really feel like um you know that um that there's re any real drama happening well there's something happening but it's not like yeah, this I, big dramatic thing what my take on this one was, um, I, and I don't know how much can be attributed to the period instruments, but mm. the uh, the different timbres, and I, I'm imagining that um, these period instruments, in in one way, they don't produce the volume of uh, modern instruments uh, in t in total, but the 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 different timbres and the textures are very clear, so you can hear the parts really well, and that yeah. maybe one. You know, it may part of that may be attributed to the instruments, but I think in the conducting, what I think he's done here is uh, he's paid very close attention to the dynamics. So, you know, in mm -hmm. any style of music, whether it's uh, you know jazz, uh, classical music, uh, if you think of the spectrum, there's uh, dynamics and there's tempos, and some people think like, okay, there's soft and loud and there's slow and fast, right? Mm. But no, there are many, you know, gradations between those things and, you know, in finding just the right tempo and just the right dynamic. And what I've thought here also, in addition to the interesting uh, tonal qualities of the instruments that are very clear in the recording, he pays very close attention to the dynamics. So there's mm -hmm. not just loud and soft here, but when when it gets loud, it doesn't, uh, as some conductors do, you know, sort of just all the loud sections are, are really full on. Here, he, he, he 
discriminates between the loud and then the very loud sections. And so um, there's a lot of contrast and the the dynamics you can really appreciate uh, throughout the piece more so than other recordings. So I, I really appreciated, you know, that it, it gave, you know, sort of a more graded uh, performance along, you know, the curve of how things develop through the piece. And, and I enjoyed that a lot. Yeah. One thing that the, uh, the conductor says, this is a French orchestra, remember? So here we are in France again. Uh, so France playing a German. Okay, we'll get to that in a minute. You know, um, he said that the uh, he streamlined the number of strings while using five double basses. He says it's a typically French characteristic to increase the ratio of instruments in the lower register, which produces a more rounded sound. I would say it pronounced, it produces a bit of a darker, more muted sound, actually. And yeah. I always like th having things in the bass as well. Um, one more note that uh, they they gave us in the booklet, which is a nice thing about um, CD. You get a you get a booklet with it. Um, I was actually kind of wondering what I could say about this recording. You know, he's got to sort of say a few sentences at all. Um, he says that in period instruments, you don't really have to make too many judgments because that's it's pretty obvious what you have to do. Whereas with an orchestra, it's a little harder to play the work, um, which I found interesting as well. Um, he said that Beethoven's tonalities, which were exotic for the time, produce a ghostly color on instruments of his time that they don't produce in a modern orchestra, which I found interesting as well. Oh, interesting. Now, I'm not really sure I was able to register that, um, either because my ear isn't subtle enough, I don't conduct these kind of orchestras, or at this point I've heard so many period instrument performances of this work that I just got used to it and don't even notice it. Um, but I, this kind of sounded breezy to me. Even the uh, Funeral March second movement, it wasn't breezy, but it wasn't really as dark as uh, it can be. Okay, then um, we get to uh, the third movement. Um, and I really want to just head ahead to the fourth movement, which was kind of like um, a theme from, uh, he sets a theme from Creatures of Prometheus, which kind of forms from nothing. Creatures of Prometheus is another Beethoven work that he had written before this or at the same time. And uh, the whole the whole piece really aims towards, I think, this fourth movement and his um, interpretation more so because the fourth movement is really a, a cheerful kind of like celebration. And I feel like we were he was he's been hinting at that since the opening two chords. And I, I thought that was a little odd, but uh, I don't know, interesting certainly and a comfortable listen. My big um, uh, sort of um, how do you, how would you say? My my um my criticism, let's say, is I I'm not sure this piece should be a comfortable listen. But then I say, well, why not? You know, let's you know maybe people will uh, get into it more if it's just uh, easier to listen to this way. Okay, I wasn't on the edge of my seat with drama, but I was I enjoyed this recording nonetheless. You want to say anything about the rest of the uh, Beethoven? Oh yeah, it's um I like I said I thought it I described it overall as fresh and light um and uh like you say whether that's what you want in beethoven or not uh depends on your taste however the clarity of the instruments and the the different dynamics i thought are well worth a listen and uh we've got one more piece at the end we, of it too right we the do, uh, yeah now this is um harmonia mundi the label that released this album is this is part of their uh, beethoven 2027 series now what that means is um 2020 
was the 250th anniversary of Beethoven's birth. And uh, 2027 will be the uh, 200th anniversary of his death because he died in 1827. Mm. So between those years, between 2020 and it'll end in 2027, they're going to be releasing all of this um, Beethoven. And uh, one of the things that um, Francois Xavier Roth is doing in his um, contribution is pairing Beethoven with a French composer. And the French composer in this case is uh, Etienne Nicolas Meul. Um, Etienne, there's a name for you, huh? This is his first name. Yeah. You imagine, being on the, imagine you're a kid, you're on the playground, and some kid comes up to you, what's your name? Eh, it's Etienne. I mean, you just... <laughs> Could be tough, yeah. He'd be picked on immediately. Yeah. Okay, anyway. Especially yeah. when the Amazons are coming. Yeah. This, well, yeah. The new, I'm just I'm thinking of New York, actually. Oh, in New York. Yeah. Uh, the Amazons. That's because this is a, uh, a overture to uh, the Amazons or the La Fondation de Thebes, the foundation of Thebes, the um, Greek city. Yes. Uh, an opera that Meul wrote. And that Napoleon... Now, there's a, there's a Napoleon connection here, too, because the Eroica was originally going to be dedicated to Napoleon until Napoleon crowned himself emperor and then Beethoven famously scratched his name out of the score and just made it to a to a, a hero. You know, I could see that happening again, actually, in, yes. 20, in 2021. But um, the Meul piece, uh, Napoleon and his second wife were present at the performance, Ooh. which did not go well, unfortunately. But the uh, the piece, the opera itself was is very good. And uh, the the overture is really nice. It's very actually Beethovenian, despite yes. it being yeah. by a French composer. So it fits in uh, here really well. Yeah, it starts with this uh, really uh, ponderous, powerful, kind of slow introduction, and then gets a little breezier in the, um, mm. the main theme of the overture. Uh, it's kind of an odd... It fits in well. It's only a six-minute work, uh, you know, so it just kind of seems like a, an add-on after the yeah. very long um, Eroica. But um, a nice, nice discovery. I wouldn't mind hearing the whole opera, actually. Um, I kind of, I kind of like this rediscovery of um, things lost, it did, things that didn't make the repertoire. Yeah, yeah. You know? All right. Okay. Next. We have an album that made my little Italian heart go pitter-pat. Oh, no. <laughs> this is oh. um, the debut recording of uh, Freddy De Tommaso. He's a British-Italian tenor called Passione. This is the same name that uh, Luciano Pavarotti gave of one of his uh, recordings of Neapolitan songs. Okay. Now, De Tommaso claims as his... His inspiration, a lot of Italian singers, but mainly Franco Corelli. Uh, Franco Corelli um, from the 60s and 50s w was one of these uh, highly passionate singers that sang like an animal. <laughs> and De Tommaso has that kind of passion too, okay, in this recording. He's trying to bring that singer back. And I got to tell you, this is, if you like opera, this is an exciting voice. We haven't heard a voice like this. Um, well, really, since before Pavarotti, Pavarotti had a different. He he was a spinto too, but uh, he had a kind of a very recognizable voice. This is new; it might be recognizable, but it uh, sounds. There's a lot of that Corelli fire in it. I have to say, and Corelli really just sang with this red hot passion. You know, if you wanna, if you know, wanna know where that uh, Cardi B WAP came from, it came from her listening to a Franco Corelli album. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm sure of it. Okay. Anyway, this is a this um album is more of a calling card, I think, for this singer. He's really um laying down his credentials, and he does he starts this right away. Incidentally, he's a British Italian, as I said. His dad was from Puglia in Italy, and his mom is English. His dad died when he was 18. Okay, these are these are popular songs. A lot of them are Neapolitan songs that will be familiar to you from. Corelli and other Italian singers like Pavarotti, uh, Mario Lanza, remember him? Oh, yeah. And uh, people like Mario Del Monaco, Giuseppe Di Stefano, Enrico Caruso. You know, they all sang these songs. So he's really kind of putting himself, you know, in the in the company of the uh, big guys here. Okay. And um, this some... Um, hmm... This is this album is really like I said it's a calling card. It's not really much of a program unless you love these songs, which I do. Um, it's going to be hard to listen to this all the way through without stopping, because it's just one big hot passionate song after another. All right, uh, and it was recorded. You know, it was recorded over a period of five days, sixteen songs in five days. I guess I could see that. Uh, you couldn't possibly do this at a single concert. <laughs> it's it's just too too draining. Okay. So we start the first piece. I should get this booklet out here. The first piece is a piece that uh, many people might remember from Pavarotti's album Mamma. It's called uh, Adio Sogni di Gloria. And boy, what a what a weepy lyric <laughs> this is. It's really we start off with super depression here and uh, you know and uh, passionate singing though. Um, uh, this is a a, a Oh boy, yeah. Like I said, Franco Crelli, Mario Lanza. Um, th okay, this song is about uh, the singer longing for the lost paths of his youth. He's looking at his old student desk and lamenting the fact that he got old. I don't see myself ever doing that, but uh, you know, it's it's it the the the, the, the it's the song, not the meaning, really. That kind of you know, the the voice is really what makes this work. Okay. Um, and he also has this way at the end of, he kind of quietens his voice again, just to just extract that tear. It's really nice. Okay. After that, we have the first of uh, a few songs by Francesco Tosti called Maracchiare, which is a very famous Neapolitan song. Maracchiare is a, is a section in Napoli. And, uh, this is more of a love song. Um, Tosti, by the way, the writer of this, um, spent a lot of his life in England. He was born in Italy, spent his life in England, and he was Queen Victoria's singing teacher. Hmm. He really mm -hmm. made his way up in uh, society there. Okay. King Edward VII even knighted him. Uh, at the end of this, by the way, Maracchiare, you know, when he's telling his, uh, his girlfriend to, uh, you know, actually, that's a different song. Never mind. But he's got this, we hear the first of his really exciting top notes and just rings out really fantastic. Uh, if you like this repertoire, you really have to hear this recording. It's really good. Okay, next we have Tosti again. Um, this time he's... Uh, this is an Italian song. It's not in the Neapolitan dialect. L'alba separa da luce l'ombre. Lyric by Gabriele D'Annunzio, the famous fascist poet. He was a great poet, though, despite being a fascist, I have to say. Okay, the brief... <laughs> okay, the brief tunes... He finds our hero possibly committing suicide. Oh... This is this is what Italian songs are all about, um, or at least dying for a love that won't return. Um, but he seems to be, 
you know, he has this, this positive theme of sunlight at the end. Next comes a song called Lolita, composed by Arturo Buzpecia. This was made famous by uh, Mario Del Monaco, and um, they use his, the arrangement they used on his recording here. It hasn't been heard since 1962. Okay, and this uh, rather Spanish tin song, it's got castanets in it. Mm. It's about a, a man with a passion that only his Spanish lover can quench. I know the feeling. Wow. <laughs> All right. Uh, next comes a song by Eduardo Di Capua, um, Itevuria Vaza, I Would Like to Kiss You. Uh, another f- a very famous Neapolitan song. Di Capua, I think, is the uh, composer of Torna Sorienta, which is not on this album. Okay, but he's he's got a few great songs to his name. Uh, in this particular piece, there are a lot of longing ritardandos Okay, Pavarotti sang this straight. Um, to, that Tommaso tries to extract more um, kind of emotion out of it in these retardandos. I'm not really sure that I liked that much, but I'm familiar with the Pavarotti recording, and he may be referencing someone else here. I don't really know a lot of the older performances of this. Next comes um, a song by Rodolfo, another famous Italian song by Rodolfo Falvo called "Say It With Me, Listeners." Dicitancello Vuia. Another great top note at the end of this very well-known Neapolitan song. Next comes the title track, Passione. Uh, Pavarotti titled an album um, after this song, too, and sang it as well. Um, um, I tend to like Pavarotti's versions better just because I'm so familiar with them. These are new. Uh, The next one is probably the most depressing song on the album, (laughs) Fenesta Kelucive. This is a very old, this is the oldest song on the album. This comes from the early 19th century, probably around the 1810s or 1820s or something. Uh, The song is about, um, uh, it's a, 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 a light in a window that isn't on anymore. The, the 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 light the, the the title means the um, the light in the window the light in um, the the light that was in the window was no longer lit and he finds out it's because um, the woman that he loved has died he didn't know about it and um, you know so he's all sad about that how and, old was she I don't know yeah uh, she she must have been pretty young I think <laughs> in these days yeah and he calls her Nanella in the song which is a Neapolitan dialect for a young girl okay so uh, she's 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 pretty young okay. Um, but of course, just learning that she's died isn't enough for an Italian song. He has to go to the church and look at her dead body and imagine the worms coming out of her mouth. This is in the lyric. <laughs> yeah, now that she's dead. <laughs> because uh, we have to really suffer completely. <laughs> anyway, after that, things kind of lighten up a bit. We have two Puccini songs. These are not opera arias. They were for voice and piano, um, but they're arranged here, and they actually sound like arias from operas because of that. Uh, Sole Amore is is a pretty passionate song, and Menti all'aviso is um, from Puccini's student days, and he's setting a lyric that's from another opera. Um, These have been orchestrated here. Next comes a song by Respighi called Nebbia, um, which is which really stands out because the orchestration is very different. I don't think yeah, he actually really modern. Uh, yeah, kind of, uh, yeah. Apparently, it wasn't finished. It was um, finished um, by a modern um, or a contemporary arranger. Um, here, the singer is being urged towards death. <laughs> the voice alternates between passion and trepidation at what lies ahead. Okay, so um, our singer gets to. Um, Try to put that across. Next, we get another Tosti song, Ideale, 
a longing for love that's now gone. This is by now you probably figured out that a lot of Italian songs are about this. Um, <laughs> you don't really need the lyrics to these songs, and uh, that's just as well because you don't get any. The booklet from this Decca recording doesn't have the lyrics to the songs. I had to find them all on the internet, and it wasn't really easy to do. And some of them, yeah. you know, a lot of them were because they're famous songs, but I had to look for them. So um, I, I'd like to complain about that to Decca. Now, I have the Pavarotti Passione album, and that had all the lyrics in it, although I have his earlier O Sole Mio album too, and that did not have the lyrics. Come on, Decca, you can afford it. Get your research team out there. Put the lyrics in the book. Okay, back to the recording. We get uh, the Leon Cavallo's Matinata. Again, Pavarotti sang this one too. Um, this one is... Um, Leon Cavallo is the, is the uh, composer of the opera Pagliacci, so you might know that name. Uh, this is a really famous song. Uh, singers often um, learn this when they're learning how to sing. It's pretty short and um, very positive. He's the, the, the um, singer is singing for his lover to come out. Okay, it was a Pavarotti staple, actually. After that, we get a song by Annunzio Paolo Mantovani. Yes, that Mantovani, the guy with the string orchestras in the 50s and 60s. This song is called Cara Mia, but don't let the Italian um, title fool you. It's an English song. It's sung in English. And it was originally sung by an English pop singer named David Whitfield in 1954. And then Italian uh, singers kind of took it up later. Uh, Di Tommaso in this song is really interesting to hear because he enunciates the words in an old-fashioned, almost 19th century style. It didn't really sound like colloquial like or spoken English. He kind of, he kind of, it was kind of arty sounding. I was kind of curious about that. Next comes one of the most passionate songs in the entire entire um, Neapolitan song uh, oeuvre. This is a core core ingrato ungrateful heart and uh, in this case he starts with the chorus um on Pavarotti's recording I didn't go back and listen to the Caruso one because he he may have done this but in the Pavarotti one he starts he builds to the to the chorus and I feel like it kind of takes away a lot of the power of the song doing that he only sings one verse as well there are two verses and the second one is the pathetic one where he goes to the church but uh, that's not here so I felt like this was a little unbalanced the, the singing is great but the the actual layout of the song was unbalanced because we didn't get the second verse okay the program ends with uh stanislao gastaldoni's musica proibita uh this is also an old mario del monaco arrangement heard for the first time since the 1960s here the, the subject of the song is pretty interesting there's a boy singing singing the song over he's overhearing a song that a man is singing below his lover's window and his mother forbids him to sing the song, but she's out now, so he sings the song. <laughs> and it's a pretty standard love song about how the man wants to caress his lover's hair, her lips, her eyes. He wants to die with her, feeling the ecstasy of love. I can see why mom doesn't want the, him singing that. Yeah. A nice ending to an exciting recording and a good um, uh, introduction to this. A new singer that I hope is going to be big. There is no voice like this now. Um, the, the the big tenor today is Jonas Kaufmann, and he doesn't really have this type of um, lyric spinto voice. A spinto is a is a voice. It's kind of a smaller voice, but it can it has the power to push through the the orchestra. So it can be lyrical and it can be powerful both. And uh, this is unique. It's it's unique to a certain number of singers, including people like Mario Lanza, Franco Corelli. Luciano Pavarotti. So we have um, this guy. This, he could. He's, I think, going to be the big uh, tenor 
on the scene for the next 20 years. Let's hope so. Anyway, this is a really great sounding voice. Now, as far as the recording goes, fans of this kind of repertoire, don't miss this. You have to hear it. Everybody else, um, I don't know. If you like the songs, go for it. It's not really a program. It's more of like a collection of songs that are really famous. Um, probably best listened to in parts or in bits. Um, I listen to it all the way through because I love every one of these songs. Anyway, there you go. That's my that's my Italian American um, bu- totally biased opinion. All right, my non-Italian uh, <laughs> perspective uh, on this one. Yeah, it's um, dramatic, very dramatic music. Uh, these songs, one the, would might say overly dramatic. Yeah, overly but, dramatic. Uh, I'll know. say it. Uh, but but inside of that, really fabulous melodies. Uh, of course, yeah. And uh, well, the now the good point about uh, <laughs> my opinion of De Tommaso is that. Uh, yeah, he's a fabulous voice, uh, but uh, what I really liked is he's got the subtleties to pull out the all of the emotional range in, in these pieces. And um, by that, what I mean is uh, when it's appropriate, he's not afraid to sing very softly. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, he, he has a really... Re- wide range of uh, what he can do with his voice. And uh, he it's never overkill of the use of his voice. When, when it's appropriate to pull out the emotion with subtlety, he can do that, which that I really appreciated, uh, you know, in uh, his sort of uh, toolbox of uh, things that he can do with his voice. So I really like that. Uh, that said, with this material, uh, he does have to reach for the big wrenches a lot of the time. And uh, that can be a little bit tiring on uh, the old uh, uh, it, <laughs> emotive it heart strings. It is a bit yeah. draining on the emotions yeah. to hear. Like, so for uh, me, uh, a few at a time. Outburst, after is, passionate outbursts. Yeah, yeah, three or four at a time is uh, good enough. Uh, yeah. You know, maybe... If I was at the uh, Italian restaurant and I'm, you know, ordering a few courses and this came on, I would be in the mood. Or next time I watch uh, The Sopranos. <laughs> <laughs> this, this would have been great on The Sopranos. Yeah, on The Sopranos. Yeah. I could get through this whole thing. But it's a it's a real tug on the old heartstrings to go through from the beginning to the end. Uh, just as far as material. Not, no, uh, yeah, no uh, sort of bad marks on his voice. Yeah, fabulous voice. Uh, and like I said, I appreciated uh, his palette of uh, subtleties as well as being able to really crank it up. He's got the full uh, toolkit of what to do with the voice. On uh, I'd like, mm-hmm. actually like to hear him on some other material other than this where he doesn't have to sort of wrench himself with all of yeah. this uh, emotional outpouring on things. Uh, I'm sure but, I'm sure we'll hear him in an opera soon yeah, enough. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, on a single part or something like that. But, the uh, nice yeah, thing yeah. about this, though, is the album is a bit of a throwback to those days in the 50s and 60s when you had singers like Franco Corelli, Mario Lanza, Lanza yeah. you know, Giuseppe Di Stefano, all these people around. Um, and he uses a lot of the arrangements from that. He wants some of that yeah. glamour. That uh, you know, and he does that, not that, disappoint on mm. what you expect from that material. That's for exactly. sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. So if you're interested in this, must hear. Okay, for those yeah. who like this repertoire. 
Okay, so so we're about to get to the jazz, but before we do that, I just noticed that I have this foam condom on my microphone that I didn't take off at the beginning of it because I I use this during the week. So I've been watching that. Yeah, yeah, you should have done. I'm going to take this off now. So if you hear this, it's kind of because I think it'll sound better without it. Okay, there we go. There it is. It's off, and now I can now I can impregnate minds. So suddenly I feel so much. (laughs) closer and intimate with you. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm sorry I went through that whole uh, bit with this kind of, I hope it didn't muffle or anything, but... Um, you should have taken that off before the De Tommaso. It I, been... I really should have. Well, that, that's he's he's what inspired me to take it off, actually. Yeah, so. I'm sure he's, he <laughs> may do that in the future, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's going to do that to a lot of the ladies, I'm sure. Yes. He's actually he's not a bad looking guy either. Judging no, no, from the yeah, cover, he, he's a, he's a, he's a little on the heavy side, but uh, still he's got those those kind of nice uh, cut Italian looks. Yeah, you know, yeah. Franco Corelli, his hero, was a super handsome guy too. He had all the all the ladies swooning. Yeah. Anyway, that's going to happen here too. Well, I still right. feel I still feel somewhat safe with the pop shield in front of my mic, even though you've removed your sheath. I've removed my sheath, but I do have a pop shield, so yes. I'm okay. Okay, that's right. <laughs> so no plosives will yeah. affect anything from here on. Yeah. Well, this week's jazz is uh, not selected to any theme other than what has just come out and what I thought was very interesting. So first of all, hmm. we have an album called Summer Changes and... Nice title, as we're going into summer here. This is on Dot Time Records. And uh, why I picked this one, I was intrigued uh, as a trumpet player myself, uh, one of the trumpet players of old who I would often listen to was Chet Baker. And uh, I remember this album, uh, Chet Baker, and the main man on this recording here who I had never heard of before and hadn't heard of after vibraphonist Wolfgang Lockerschmidt. Yeah, it's our first vibraphone uh, first recording that we're listening to. Album. We don't hear enough of the vibraphone yeah. these days, I think, in jazz. Yeah, you never hear enough of this instrument, which can be quite lovely. But uh, yeah, this, this was one of my father's favorite instruments, by the way. He liked uh, right. like Lionel Hampton Lionel and Cal Hampton. Jader. Cal Jader was the other one. Red Norvo going way back. And I had heard this uh, recording with uh, Wolfgang Lockerschmidt and Chet Baker, which has been, uh, I think it's recently re-released by the uh, Dot Time uh, label that goes, there's actually two, I don't know if they recorded them all at once and then released them as two different sessions, but they go back to 1979. I think there's two recordings called uh, Ballads for Two, which is the one I heard, and then another one that is called Quintet Sessions with other players. But particularly the Ballads for Two with just vibraphone and, you know, Chet Baker's mellow playing of that time in the late 70s was really a haunting and uh, interesting selection of material. And so I had remembered that name, and then I saw uh, there's a new release uh, by Wolfgang Lockerschmidt, and I thought, well, this is worth checking out. And uh, here he is with uh, sort of a American uh, group of well-known players, uh, Mark Soskin on piano, who's played with just about everyone, and I think he's associated with Manhattan School of Music. On bass, Jay Anderson, 
and drums, Adam Nussbaum. So big names in the uh, U.S. New York jazz scene. And here with the vibraphones of Wolfgang Lagerschmidt, uh, who was born uh, in Germany in 1956. And he's well known in Germany as a vibraphone virtuoso and also as a composer since the 1970s. He's done a lot of uh, composing for various settings. He's played on over 100 recordings, uh, not only Chet Baker, uh, Lee Konitz, uh, Larry Coriel, Buster Williams, Paquito de Rivera, has a uh, good resume of recordings. And he was also a participant in various uh, vibraphone summits since 1978 with Milt Jackson, Bobby Hutcherson, Dave Samuels, and others. And so this album comes out sort of on the heels of these re-releases of the Chet Baker sessions. And it was recorded in 2018, but just released this year in 2021. So I thought, well, we haven't heard vibes. And I remember this uh, recording with Chet Baker. And I thought, well, let's, let's check it out. And I was not disappointed. Uh, mm. The overall mood is very <clears throat> mellow and subdued, but there are some really uh, interesting burning parts and nice things that go on here. So we start out on this recording with a tune called Half the Way. And I'll mention that uh, most of this are original uh, compositions by uh, Lockerschmidt. And he's a very good composer. He creates very, uh, when you hear his tunes, you'll think you, you know, they become memorable right away. There's just two cover tunes in here. And uh, so his original compositions are really good which we start out with half the way, and it's a 5-4 uh, swing, so five beats per measure, uh, which is unusual, but uh, you get right into it. It's a nice minor melody, and you get to hear his lovely vibraphone sound. Yeah, so and, the 5-4 five, five, is divided into 3 plus 2. There's yeah, like an accent. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's kind of a, it's a pretty it's, – it's, it's kind of interesting how it just kind of keeps – it keeps you moving along, keeps them yeah. moving along. One thing uh, that's interesting about this, maybe overdone, it depends how you listen to it and what you like, but the vibraphone is panned rather extremely with the high register in the left and the low in the right. So as <laughs> this kind of drives me crazy. Yeah, it drives me crazy <laughs> when they do it with piano too. But you know, it yeah. gives the impression, depending on where you're listening, that the vibraphone is maybe like 20 feet long. <laughs> when I was listening to it on my big speakers, it was like, oh, Man, he must have really long arms to play this vibraphone. <laughs> um, it's the same thing when they, you know, pan you feel drum. Like you have to put your speakers closer together. Just yeah, to when they pan drum the right cymbals, effect. you know, and they have the the cymbals panned to the extremes. Uh, well, mm. I don't know about that choice. Uh, otherwise, the sound quality is nice. But uh, yeah, he he plays a uh, relaxed solo with uh, bursts of speed in some places. And uh, a really nice uh, original melody in this uh, difficult time signature. And uh, got a little drum break, a nice piano solo, and a nice ringing ending that the vibraphone can uh, provide. And so, yeah, a nice start with an original tune. Then we get the... Uh, yeah, that 3 plus 2 rhythm, by the way, reminded me a bit of... Um, who did it remind me of? The... Uh... Time out, Dave Brubeck. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. It kind Take of five. Of that right that's, away. Yeah. That's the iconic five-four piece, right? One, two, and then one, two, three, four, five, and then you get it there. Yeah. So uh, that's sort of in that kind of vein, 
And then we get uh, the title track, Summer Changes. And uh, this is a waltz tune. It's a gentle waltz. But they also uh, sort of go into a quadruple feel over it. So it's not strictly a waltz. Uh, then they play sort of a cross meter with some uh, figures that are in four. So it, it mixes up the rhythm. It still uh, creates an overall nice relaxed uh, feel and we very nice uh, relaxed solos on the vibraphone and piano. Uh, another original track for number three, Lemon Moon. And this great starts title. with a, yeah, great title. Is, is this his original? Yeah. Another original. Yeah, great title. Uh, it, it starts with a catchy riff that's uh, on the vibes and then repeated in the bass. This one's uh, an even beat tune, uh, not swing, uh, but it matches the nice happy melody. And we get some uh, rhythmic vibe and piano solos. And uh, he, by this point in the album, you'll see that uh, his style is a very mellow, soft uh, mallet style. It's more like uh, Red Norvo, if you go way back, or Gary Burton, rather than the aggressive sort of uh, style of Milt Jackson. So he's on the laid back uh, style. So you have to look for the subtleties in his playing. I, this is my favorite uh, track on the album, by the way. Oh, you like this? Yeah, it's a nice I one. Like the, it's a beautiful melody. And it's also the, the tempo that they choose kind of allows the the melody to just, it's just perfect for the melody. Yeah, it just kind of allows nice. it to just bloom into the ear. It's really nice. You, know, you don't have to do any work. It's all right there for yep. you. I liked it a lot. Yeah. Uh, another one, number four is another original one, Mother's Dream. Uh, and this starts with a nice uh, solo piano intro. And then we get the uh, melody uh, on vibes. And yeah, it's a really nice melody. Uh, his original compositions are great. Uh, then we get our first uh, wood uh, bass solo. It's a very woody, uh, nice uh, tonality here. You can almost taste that wood. Some more vibes. And uh, what I like on the solo here, which Lakershman is really nice at using uh, both uh, grace notes, because he, he's not he's never really showing off his technique for show. He's always about constructing great melodic solos, but he does put in little grace notes and ornaments uh, very well. Mm -hmm. And that's here. And then you, in this tune, you also get a feel for his use of dynamics. Uh, he's very subtle and, and he has not just soft and loud uh, as we were talking with the Beethoven, but, various gradations uh, that he uses to uh, build his compositions and his solos. He's a very mature soloist. Um, after that, number five, uh, we've got a tune called We Ain't No Magicians. And this is dedicated to uh, vibraphonist Bobby Hutcherson. And nice this starts again. out with a, a hypnotic kind of uh, using the pedal on the vibes in the intro and uh it, it starts with a very sort of hypnotizing feel and then it settles into a nice uh, Latin groove with some uh, syncopations and accents for support. And uh, he shows off a bit more technique here than he does in some of the other pieces, but he, he builds these solo, all of his solos take you on a little trip. Uh, he's, you know, he's not showing off rather than really giving you those kind of mature solos that show up. You know, when you hear imp improvised solo by a great jazz musician, it becomes, when you think of it, it's like, uh, it couldn't have been any other way. You know, it's inevitability. And that's the mark of, even if he had written this out, it wouldn't be any better than 
what he just thought of. And you can get that sense from his playing uh, here. Uh, so it's a great vibe solo. And then uh, Soskin, who is, uh, you know, he's played with just about everyone. Uh, and uh, you can see why he's a, a desired uh, person to have in your album. He plays a solo with some uh, interesting rhythms that sort of, uh, I, I really like this solo he plays here. It does something midway through that's interesting. So if you've ever driven a truck that has uh, sort of a dual range in it, and not when you're driving sort of like uh, in your main transmission with gears one to four or five, when there's like a high and low range too, it's sort of like uh, midway through, he sort of shifts from that low range to the high range and the solo sort of, ramps up to a new level and i there's not too many sort of places where i can think of the same effect uh happens but something happens midway in his solo and it's like he's uh on a different level and, and that was very interesting in this tune to me and uh next hmm. uh this was my my kind of highlight track because uh this was uh, not an original Although I really appreciated his original compositions, here was something I vaguely remembered, and I really liked the treatment of it and the implications, however subtle they may be. Uh, number six, Rosemary's Baby. <laughs> Is this the theme from the movie? Yes. Uh, yeah, I thought so. I was kind of by, I didn't give a uh, check. Polish composer, uh, well, stage name, Krzysztof Komeda. Komeda sounding very Japanese. Uh, uh, if you like we do live in Japan, yeah, but we, uh, we hear a lot of his real name was <laughs> uh, Trzinski, like and he took this name as a, you know, a sort of talent name that he thought, but anyway, from the Polanski uh, movie. And uh, if you know the story, it's rather ominous uh, kind of yeah. uh, meaning. And they bring that here. Uh, this it, um, it ends badly for humanity. Let's yes. Just put it that way. Uh, so the, the piece starts out with a mysterious ringing and, so I'm imagining what he did was somehow uh, get the vibraphone sustain ringing with the pedal and then sort of, uh, you know, bring that in as an effect, which uh, is sort of mysterious at the beginning. And then the he brings in the sad minor uh, melody on vibes, and it's got a, a sort of Latin 6-8 uh, feel to it. We get a nice uh, deep bass solo. And uh, then over to a piano solo by Suskin, who uh, makes something kind of intense with some real left hand uh, driving into his solo. And we get a, a bluesy vibe solo. And then we're back into the mysterious ringing. And there's a, a kind of a, a bass intro into a drum solo. And this is very sort of... Uh, how can I say uh, the the drum? This drum solo might be calling like the cult members to come and uh, you know <laughs> take all of the 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 children in the village or something. And then uh, have finally, you seen, have you seen this movie by the way? Yeah, I have seen it uh, ages yeah. ago. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so then the theme kind of returns in the kind of there's a fitting kind of dark ending to it. Uh, so I thought uh, it's very subtle, but uh, really nice arrangement. <laughs> of this kind mm. of creepy movie too yeah so i like this one yeah it's kind of it's a bit of a standout it, it really felt different than everything else yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, but nice a nice treatment and arrangement and uh number seven uh on the album this is also a not an original this is by uh nat simon uh poinciana uh, and this is tune. 
Yeah. Uh, so this is a famous tune. It's been played by a lot of people, uh, including, uh, well, in the old days, Glenn Miller, Benny Carter, even Bing Crosby. But as uh, maybe a jazz improvisational tune, Ahmad Jamal recorded this. And it's a development of a Cuban folk song, uh, I think, That's uh, La Cancion del Arbol, uh, which mm. is like the song of the tree. Uh, but a nice treatment here. It's a drum intro with uh, bass and piano chords that starts the Latin beat. And we've got the vibes, uh, piano and bass solos. Uh, so a very nice uh, feel on this tune. And uh, then we have uh, another uh, tune uh, closing in an original. And this is uh, Stundenwalser. Which, That's an original? Uh, yeah, original. And hmm. uh, this is very interesting. It takes... Uh, the notes on uh, the record label says it takes inspiration from the book Momo by Michael Ende, which is uh, conceived as a description of time. And it's supposedly written around 12 ascending harmonies that go round and round, uh, simulating the uh, hours on a clock. I, I couldn't really visualize this when I was listening to it, but when you listen to it, the vibes start in the intro going through these series of uh, changes that develop into a slow waltz. And so maybe you can get the, the feeling of uh, changing times or hours on the clock. And there's a accented chord pattern that builds from the intro. And then the solo is divided into different sections. And uh, especially in the piano solo, you get some interesting harmonic uh, explorations and then some nice vibe and bass solos over this pattern so yeah overall uh this song and uh the other originals on here are very nice originals uh, we've got uh really good melodies in his original tunes uh, they all have very compelling harmonies also and he mixes up the types of rhythms that uh, they decide to play to and improvise over and what you know, the characteristic of good songwriting, the tunes sound familiar right away. It's like, oh, this sounds like I, I know it already, but yet it's unique and like that. And then the style of playing, particularly by uh, on the vibe solos and the piano solos, they're very mature and musical. No one's showing off here, this subtlety. And although the overall impression of the album is very relaxed, it does have its spots where it burns and you get some sort of, uh, how can I say, um, subtle kind of uh, references to feelings and things, especially in uh, like Roma Rosemary's Baby. <laughs> that one was uh, pretty fun. So uh, it, it does was. have its spots where it highlights. But uh, yeah, enjoyable recording. And if, if you're in the mood for some vibes, yeah, pick up some interesting vibes on this recording by Wolfgang Lockerschmidt. Yeah, beautifully performed all the way is what I wrote here. Yeah, uh, what a cool instrument. Yeah, I remember we had one when I was in high school in uh, jazz band, and you know, it's a very heavy thing. It's on a, you know, it's yeah. like a cart, and it's on wheels and everything. And it's, it's electric, right? It's got yeah, because like, yeah, you plug it in, and then yeah. you get that sort of the motor spins the shaft that in each tube has right. a little like baffle or whatever it's called, but that's where mm -hmm. you get the stain from. But uh, yeah, really, really cool instrument. I would have one right 
right here in my little music room if uh, I could afford it. Yeah. And well, maybe we maybe we're on a we'll afford be able to afford that one day. Yeah, yeah. I just want yeah. to play it, and I have to figure out that cool mallet technique where they have those, you know, two in each hand, and somehow they adjust the distance. It's a different yeah, from playing piano or something. You know, I think so. that's Japanese uh, marimba player uh, Keiko Abe who came up with that technique. Now everybody has to play with two mallets oh, really? in each hand. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's really Someone's going to try three pretty soon, and then we'll see what happens. But oh boy, uh, I could do one in each hand. I can probably do that. Well, that's I don't know. That's all you need to do really for yeah. jazz. I think to get some new glasses to use three. Yeah. All mm. right. So uh, let's pick one. Pick two is pick two. Uh, uh, something by a trumpeter who I'd heard a previous release from. And uh, when I saw this came out, I said, well, I've got to hear this. And it did not disappoint. The trumpeter is Mr. Michael Rodriguez. And uh, he's on a label, Rod Bros Music. And uh, his brother is also a musician. And I believe this must be their own independent label. Hence the Rodriguez Brothers hint in the title. The album is called pathways. And who is Michael Rodriguez? Well, he has an impressive resume going back to playing with such great uh, trumpet players as uh, Clark Terry, uh, other players, uh, Bobby Watson, Quincy Jones, Joe Lovano, uh, Toshiko Akiyoshi Orchestra. Uh, He's played with pop uh, musicians like Jessica Simpson. Uh, He's played with uh, Wynton Marsalis, and uh, the Lincoln Center Orchestra and Charlie Hayden's Liberation Music Orchestra. Long, long, long resume. Uh, Harry Connick Jr., Bob Mincer, and so forth. And uh, currently he's uh, on the faculty at uh, New York University and uh, as an adjunct professor of trumpet. And, well, I'm always interested to hear uh trumpet players with something a little bit different. And so I said, uh, let's check out this album. On this one, he's here with uh, John Ellis on saxophone, uh, Gary Versace on piano, Obed Caveria on drums, and Joe Martin on bass. And so the album starts out with the title track called Pathways. And we get a very uh, searching melody that's uh, shared by the Saxon trumpet uh, sort of sets the tone for this album. A lot of the arrangements are uh, related to this uh, title track in style. Uh, the horn lines are underpinned by a low bass and piano line that has uh, alternating uh, even and swing beats. So you get a mix up in the style of the rhythm. And we start out with a uh, trumpet solo over a very hard swing. And you'll get a feel for Rodriguez's sound. It's a warm sound, but it's very composed and centered. And his solo turns out some nice runs uh, with also some accented phrases. The drumming on this album is very tight and uh, kind of unique. It feeds the solo well. And uh, he on, on this track, he changes up the beat at the end of the verse uh, to turn things around very nicely. We've got a nice sax solo uh, and uh, an interestingly broken uh, phrased piano solo uh, that the drums and bass help to divide up. We get a little bass solo and back to the head. So you get the mood of what's coming up on this album here. Uh, the track two is called In Due Time. It's a little ballad in 6-8. 
another uh, melody that's uh, shared by the Saxon trumpet. And as this theme develops, they have uh, many arrangements like this on this album. The uh, trumpet and sax lines are sort of supported by uh, lower lines that are doubled by the piano and bass, often uh, very syncopated that sort of build a contrast and uh, tension to that. Uh, nice piano solo with some interesting rhythm alterations, nice lyrical sax solo. And it sounds like Rodriguez switches over to uh, the flugelhorn here with a nice solo. And I like how he stays really warm and mellow, building uh, tension with a rhythm rather than going to high register so much or anything. And we get a nice little bass solo with some light intricate drum work behind it. And then at the end of the tune, the uh, drums come in for a kind of double time drumming uh, to build tension to the end. Uh, so nice uh, track that's descriptive of its title in due time. Hmm. <laughs> uh, the next one kept me guessing. Uh, yeah. Number three is called just in case. And uh I have no idea what time signature is this in. It seems to be in like a 10-4 uh, oh or God. something. It's like a 10 beats or something. But, uh, but every time I thought I had to figure it out, something else happened. Uh, it starts with a tricky bass figure, and then the melody is filled with very tricky uh, rhythms. Uh, we begin with a sax solo. And uh, the trumpet solo here explores some interesting harmonies, and then he goes into a little more of uh, the chromatic uh, explorations that we hear a lot uh, these days. So he's trying out some uh, contemporary sort of uh, harmonic explorations. We've got a nice piano solo with some free runs, uh, drum solos over the bass and piano, and then everyone comes in. And at the end of this tune, uh, it it uh, sort of uh, congeals into a Latin-y kind of uh, unison play at the end. Uh, not really unison, but uh, shared sort of... Uh, vibe that they create uh, number four is called crossroads and uh, this is a waltz with some interesting harmonies and again they take that uh, technique of uh, syncopated bass uh, and piano figures under the melody uh, which makes a nice contrast the piano takes a spacey solo that uh, sort of frees up the rhythm and then we get some real harmonic exploration on the trumpet solo but again he keeps it really lyrical. The sax uh, comes in on a solo that's got a nice spacey feel to it. And then uh, the drum solo over an ostinato bass uh, figure that repeats uh, and brings us out. And that's a nice track. Number five is uh, Solid Ground. And uh, this one has a lot of motion in lines uh, with an interesting bass line and piano uh, and bass. The trumpet and sax melody kind of weave among these lines with some interesting uh, modal things. And then mm. uh, this is this picks up some nice uh, modal kind of improvisations here rather than chromatic. The trumpet solo uh, picks up these modes and explores the spaces between them. The sax does it too. And then uh, the piano comes in and uh, does some more rhythmic explorations. So this one uh, gets into a little sort of different uh, modal explorations here. Yeah, and you know me well, so this is my favorite. Oh, you like uh, this one, yeah. Piece because of the modes. I really love modal harmony. The modes, yeah. yeah. And so this one, um, so I felt like when I got to here, like I got, oh, I really know what 
this group specializes in because they they sort of have these almost all unison, sometimes splitting the sax and trumpet with minimalist harmony and then putting that with a counterpoint with sort of almost, uh, you know, a bass and uh, piano bass line sort of, uh, you know, line that becomes another melody. And then the last two tracks sort of break me out of that. So I thought that was interesting mm-hmm. because number six is something completely different. It's called Throughout. And this is a piece that is almost, uh, they must have uh, deliberately thought, how can we make a piece that's so minimalistic that it removes almost all elements of other things. So this is a, a ballad that starts with a kind of a tinkling piano opening. It grows into a slow waltz, but the lines that it's actually, I had to listen several times to figure this out, but I believe that this trumpet and, and sax are playing together, but there's no, no differentiation in, other than a few points. There's a very long lethargic, horn lines and they keep the melody deliberately as minimalist as possible uh it's it's very sort of uh scaled back as much as possible and then that goes into it a trumpet solo there's no sax solo here the trumpet solo keeps the mood there's no wasted notes at all here it's extremely distilled only lovely uh tones and a similarly soft bass solo. When the uh, horns come back in, there's a few points where they uh, diverge, and you can hear the sort of, uh, I won't even call it harmonized, but uh, divergent tones. But this is like a purposely minimalized uh, arrangement, and the effect is very profound after all of the other very busy syncopated arrangements. So this tune I thought was quite striking. I don't know if you noticed that on this one or not, but yeah, it was, no, it was different. Yeah. (laughs) I can. Yeah. And And it doesn't jive with the title as throughout. uh, uh, I would title it without, like without (laughs) embellishment. And then the album ends up with the uh, only uh, standard, uh, the old Rogers and Hart spring is here. And very pretty it is. Yeah, very pretty. Starts with a soft round uh, toned trumpet with an intro and the bass only joins uh, for the melody once it comes in. And then uh, the drum brushes sneak in. uh, And finally, the piano comes in. Uh, We get a nice trumpet solo that's a mix of... uh, He sort of alternates uh, what he's going for. There's a very soft lower register. And then he'll go to some searching uh, kind of runs in his improvisations. And then he brings it back to this uh, very uh, lower register thing. So I I like that sort of uh, two tiered solo approach. I thought that was unique. Uh, A nice kind of piano solo, some very spatial type of figures at the end. And then when the trumpet returns with the theme, he, he builds it to the end, something that wasn't there before. It gets stronger, and uh, he adds some flurries and some uh, hard tonguing at the end. Uh, sort of, uh, the spring has finally come. You can sort of feel the buds coming out, and so he gets that emotional element to it. So, Very nice. uh, I like that a lot. Yeah, but uh, yeah, great trumpet player. 
Uh, this guy deserves to be heard more. He's got great technique, and uh, they've got their own concept uh, in this group here. So Pathways, Michael Rodriguez. Uh, this is a enjoyable disc. I was thinking, listening to the last track, Spring is Here. This is from uh, the Rogers and Hart um, musical, I Married an Angel, from 1938. Right. I just looked this up. I actually don't know that um, musical. But I really do like the Rogers and Hart um, sort of... Um, songwriting team more than the oh, Rogers yeah. and Hammerstein one, although I do like Rogers and Hammerstein too. Right. Um, I feel like, Richard, you, you think of great American composers. You think of, you know, the you know Gershwin yep. and you can think of Copeland. You think of um, Duke Ellington. Richard Rogers has to be in there. I mean, oh, yeah. Think, oh, think, absolutely. He, he's always paired with Hart and Ham, Hammerstein. They're like two different periods, but just his whole, you know, his whole, uh, you know, kind of like life's work of uh, songs is just incredible, man. Yeah. So many, so yeah. many classics. Yeah, this is a great one. Today. People, and, people need to do more, more records of his songs. I think. And I mean, it's been recorded by everyone. Uh, probably, I guess yeah. maybe people think of the Bill Evans version as iconic. And jazz artists keeping but, uh, it alive. That's good, but uh, yeah. I feel like yeah, it's a new take. Yeah, He's, but um, the, here as uh, I, I like this. This is what I really like. Um, you know, we, we're looking at lots of uh, new jazz releases, and uh, of course, uh, I. I'm really excited about composers that do like a, a whole disc of uh, originals right. and things, but I really like this approach more like give me something at one standard that you can find a new approach yeah. to, uh, right. or even like the uh, previous album, the uh, Wolfgang Lockerschmidt. Yeah. Rosemary's baby. That was like, <laughs> that was a really tasty toss in there, yeah. you know, uh, find something like that uh, to do. I find one of the, one of the more annoying things about classical music is like say you're giving a piano recital and then there are people in the audience with the score kind of like you're reading oh, along yeah, as you yeah. play to see what you mess up and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. So so it's 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 in a way it's kind of nice to play contemporary works because nobody knows right. how it goes and it goes the way you play it basically. Right. You know, you can't, yeah, they, yeah. they can't do that to you, which I, that's that's really a horrible yeah, thing. Yeah, it goes on each end, right? <laughs> and and so ultimately, mm. like a little bit of balance. Um, so I thought. I really liked the original things. And then um, I, I especially like the throughout, I was really thrown back by this minimalist composition. And then I thought, oh, and then to end with a standard like this, yeah, very nice touch. So, um, I so too. yeah, fabulous trumpet player, uh, Michael Rodriguez. Uh, it's a big field, lots of players. I mean, we- uh, a lot, There are a lot of great trumpeters out there these yeah, days. Yeah, there are. Um, and uh, I want to hear- more of the guys that aren't recognized by the Grammys and uh, other players, because I think all yeah. these guys are just as good. Well, the Grammy, um, the Grammys crowd is is pretty small. They keep, they yeah. seem to like the same people. I don't yeah, know. I, we got to get in there. We got to be on part of the Grammy team and just got to decide. They don't the, bother uh, listening the to all these album, other guys. Alex Sipiogin, mm. who we heard uh, previously, Michael Rodriguez, uh, and so many other good players. Uh, but uh, yeah, this guy's Rodriguez is right up there. Uh, nice effort. And the last recording for this week, yeah. uh, this is a one that I, I wish I knew more about so that I could uh, talk coherently about it, but I saw yeah. it on a new re releases thing and uh, it's still a bit of a mystery. And yeah, this is for, for all the, gu the guitar players out there. Um, it's an album by Diego Lubrano. It's called, which is kind of an Italian name, even though he's it sounds, Spanish. It sounds yeah. Italian. Yeah, uh, I had a, my uh, a Spanish lady 
yesterday told me that it doesn't sound very Spanish. Uh, and But the title, El Vuelo, is a very Spanish-sounding, uh, actually, um, I think it has some meaning in Spanish, doesn't it? Uh, the Flight. Yes, but um, the the songs on this album are sense. variously uh, Spanish or French or English, and all information uh, and about uh, the album is in French. And the uh, record label is uh, Arts et Musique en Provence, which is very French sounding yes. too. So uh, he sounds like a guy in France who has some sort of possibly. Uh, Spanish background. We don't know, Diego. If if you yeah. listen to this review, uh, enlighten us. Um, but um, he French is people here. are pretty crazy about music, so yeah. I could see that they really do like some off the beaten path kind of things. But he does um, have a uh, a bio in French, which uh, I uh, translated for myself and looked at. So he's a self taught guitarist and composer, and this is his first solo release. He's played on. Uh, some other people's uh, recordings in support uh, roles. And uh, his background is in uh, flamenco guitar and also jazz. And he helps to link these two styles together, uh, which a lot of the new flamenco or nuevo flamenco style uh, does. And uh, so he's first started out as a flamenco guitarist inspired by uh, Paco de Lucia, uh, Vincente Amigo uh, and other musicians. But then he moved on to studying and listening to jazz musicians like uh, Joe Pass, uh, Wes Montgomery, and then more uh, modern players, Pat Metheny, uh, the great uh, French jazz uh, guitarist, uh, Sylvain Luc, uh, but also listened to uh, Sonny Rollins. And he's also uh, inspired compositionally by uh, classical composers of uh, Foray and Debussy. As uh, I suppose, well, as many jazz French, composers are, Frenchmen yeah. and uh, jazz composers would be. So I don't know if he's a Spanish background, Italian background. I, I have no idea. Uh, anyway, uh, so you're going to get some flamenco background and jazz background. And the album, I think, on the the place where I saw it was listed as uh, kind of jazz fusion. So this is the kind of thing where yeah, uh, that maybe... that makes sense, but it's yeah. not like Weather Report jazz fusion. No, no. So, yeah. yeah. Purists beware, but open-minded people. Uh, yeah, some nice stuff here, which I will detail as we go right ahead. Pure, purists probably shouldn't be listening to our podcast. No, no. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure they're go, all gone by now. Go f- uh, <laughs> can I... I was almost we, ready to say something bad, but go French no, yourself. No, we love you guys, and, but uh, yeah, we're, yeah, kinda, yeah, we're just yeah, kind of... Yeah. Yeah. I have this kind of, I'll tell you about this later. I have this theory that there's no such, the, the word, you know how the word like jazz sweet really bothers me? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The word pure as opposed, yeah. as applied to music always bothers me too, because I don't think there's any such thing as pure music. All music is kind of bastardized from somewhere. I feel like, like the new yeah, is yeah. always kind of like a combination of a lot of things. Yeah I, yeah, I really think that's what music does. It brings things together. Well, there are it some musicians. It brings styles together, too. There are some musicians who claim to not be influenced by other music. Yeah, like there are. They're, Yanni they're like, and John Tesh. Yeah, but... Uh, in Yanni's case, I could probably believe it. <laughs> maybe. It doesn't, sound, it doesn't yeah. sound like there's anything in that music. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, here, but, we get some interesting... Uh, results and uh, yeah, I I like this one a lot. Uh, so let's start out. <laughs> his music is inspired by his wallpaper. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, but uh, yeah, uh, Diego's music is uh, quite nice here. We start out not with, Diego's uh, music; it's really good, but it yeah, is yeah. kind of like you know has various influences, which I love. I think yeah. that's great. So uh, the first one, uh, Porchancha, um, and then to me, this one starts with more of kind of a bossa beat than uh, cha cha. Oh, I should mention that um, his uh, compatriots here are Bernard Menu on bass and Adrian Spica on percussion, mm. who I think plays a variety of um, a light percussion and also cajon. Uh, it's very subdued and tasteful here. And um, it varies by tune. So the uh, poor cha-cha, uh, as I said, it sounds more uh, uh, bossa than cha-cha to me with the very light percussion. But uh, all, these are all original tracks. And one thing you'll come to see that uh, Lumbrano has a very nice uh, compositional sense um, for all original tunes. I found the very compelling, uh, a nice melody here. And he plays the melody while he harmonizes it on uh, the acoustic guitar through its turns uh, over the light support on the bass. And then uh, it returns to the sort of slow intro beat before the end with a lot of nice runs and embellishment. But this piece here particularly is a very uh, straight composed piece. The the first, uh, this one, Por Cha Cha, is, is not a lot of improvisation here. This is a composed piece that he wants to be very much as it is. And, you know, so that's sort of uh, a set composition. Uh, very nicely done. Uh, number two, uh, we get a quick turn into a different realm, sunset above the clouds. And here we've uh, turned into the jazz sort of sphere. And we get a more electric sound. I don't know if he's using the same guitar or if he's changed instruments, but it sounds like an electric guitar here. We've got a waltz melody and it starts swinging away over a walking bass and uh, Lebrano shows off his jazz chops. And uh, one thing you can see, I guess it may be the uh, Wes Montgomery uh, influence. He likes to use these uh, uh, double stops, uh, you know, harmonized sort of melodic lines. And from the midpoint to the end of his solo, he uses these a lot uh, in here. And uh, then he trades uh, uh, accompanying. So he's, he's comping and then trading solos with the bass over eight bar phrases, uh, which he does quite uh, skillfully on this tune. And so, you know, we, we go from uh, this sort of composed Latin piece. Now we're into jazz. And then uh, the third tune is uh, Emergencia. And uh, here we get a, a kind of alternating chord figure over uh, this beat that starts another Latin melody. Uh, nice improvised uh, solo back to the acoustic guitar sound here over a very Latin jazz sounding kind of bass line or not even jazz, more Latin. And here, the first emergence of his flamenco background uh, starts. Uh, you hear some of these runs, but then he brings in some of the jazz uh, double stops, more West Montgomery kind of thing here. And uh, there's a short bass solo uh, before returning to the melody. The percussion is light and tight and so you know by the th third track you're sort of getting all of these influences that he has flamenco uh other latin music and also jazz chops uh then we number four uh i a french title uh dis moi i guess means uh, tell me 
Dimois, tell me, yeah. Yeah, and uh, here, very interesting meter, uh, seven four, but it's divided into three beats and then four beats, and so it keeps this piece in motion. A very flamenco, new flamenco style. Uh, with lots of flamenco strums for accents, uh, also some uh, body guitar tapping, uh, contrasting mm. with soft sections. Uh, we've got some cajon here. And uh, what I like uh, as he plays through this, in some places, the bass doubles the guitar melody uh, for kind of effect. Yeah, very nice uh, tune. Uh, number five. El Vuelo, the title of the album, uh, which translates as The Flight. And uh, he keeps the flamenco feel going here. Uh, nice original melody and arrangement. Um, it's This sounds like something that uh, Paco de Lucha and Aldi Miola might have done. Uh, lots of really difficult lines, fast runs, and changing meters. He shows off his ten- technique, and the tune ends with like a bravura finish. Uh, so, yeah, he's really showing off his uh, new flamenco chops here. Uh, Number six, uh, Poor Lulu. Uh, Solo guitar, plays a nice rubato melody. It turns a bit minor and mysterious with some uh, flamenco style riffs. Goes back to the melody. uh, And his solo has a lot of interval kind of things and uh, embellishments uh, before it returns to a more relaxed thing. So it's a different mood on this kind of tune. Um, number seven, I like this tune a lot. It's called <laughs> Seriously. I guess this <laughs> is kind of ironic because um, the tune starts a melody in a 4-4, a, uh, you know, standard four-beat tune. Suddenly, it changes to a hard-swinging 5-4 with this kind of really popping electric bass, right? Uh, <laughs> so I wonder, are you serious? Are you really doing this, right? And uh, then um, Lebrano constructs a cool solo over this 5-4. It gets kind of bluesy at times. So he pulls out a bluesy feeling over this time signature. Then we get a cajon solo over the uh, guitar and bass uh, chords. So having a bit of fun here. Maybe he uh, means seriously with a question mark. Yeah, I think so. There, there is no question mark in the title, though. 4-4 four, four yeah. into 5-4? No question mark, but that's how I took it. Uh, number mm. eight is uh, La Sabiduria del Mar, The Wisdom mm. of the Sea. Ah. And this is uh, uh, very much a new flamenco style. Uh, it's got contrasting sections of percussion and then bass back guitar, and then like really rhythmically free guitar only phrases uh, changes up a lot. This is a fun piece. I, I enjoyed mm. this one a lot. Uh, number nine, the moment. Uh, slow cajon beat here with guitar flourishes. Uh, it's got a real intro. And then it starts a slow melody uh, that is sometimes has these sort of intermittent flurries on the guitar that comes in. Uh, it gets in, sort of very improvisational midway through. And then he alternates sort of improvised, sometimes bluesy phrases with uh, accompaniment chords. And then more of his double stop lines. This piece has got a lot going on in it. And then uh, we get a nice warm bass solo. Then it returns to the melody and then sort of sandwiched almost a parallel construction back to the flamenco flourishes at the end. So this this is a 
big sandwich of lots of sounds here. <laughs> a sandwich of sounds. Oh, boy. Sandwich of sounds, yes. Uh, yeah. And we continue. Um, now, uh, after we've done a bunch of uh, flamenco things, we get uh, return to a jazz thing. And number 10, I Remember Joy. Nice title. And this yeah. is a real swing jazz thing. And uh, he pulls out the real double stop kind of things. He plays the whole melody on that with a more of an electric uh, sound. He gives us a nice fluid guitar jazz solo, uh, some runs, and then he does some really tight strumming uh, over the chords uh, for fun. And he trades with the percussion uh, before coming back to the melody. So he uh, comes back to the uh, his jazz persona here. Uh, number 11, uh, Suguiri, Suguiria Blues. And uh, this one really starts with like an El Dimiola-esque opening riff. Uh, it's a real kind of new flamenco, uh, some extremely technical flourishes uh, before the melody comes in. This one had me uh, in uh, sort of uh, fluster trying to figure out what was going on here. It's kind of in a 12 beats uh, pattern, but uh, then it changes to like a bluesy swing in four midway through for an improvised solo and some kind of swinging chords. And then suddenly it changes to flamenco again uh, mm -hmm. with some really fast runs in strumming. And then uh, at the end of this piece, uh, I think this is the only place on the album he does uh he overdubs a solo over his strumming. Uh, it's obvious. I think this is physically impossible. No one can play this. Maybe Martin Taylor could pull this off, but no, I think well, maybe he, he has another guitarist on the it, track. It could I be, don't know. although it's not credited. Yeah. Nowhere I could find it credited, but yeah. Right. Um, but yeah, it, it's cool because he's doing some really uh, good stuff on uh, both parts here. And then uh, we've got the closing track, uh, number 12, Lumiere du Soir, yeah. Evening Light. And uh, this one is uh, another new flamenco style piece with a jazzy solo. Got some melody phrases. Uh, this is really interesting. The timing here, I I'm assuming this was all done by feel. It's sometimes like two bars of six beats, and then sometimes one bar of six and one in five. And then it sort of anticipates and jumps in. But it's not any regular pattern so it keeps you on your toes and uh, so i'm wondering if that's a purposely done thing or it just uh, evolves out of their playing but it's very interesting and uh yeah so the the overall effect of this album is that it's an, a fusion of uh you know new flamenco and jazz styles his songwriting is excellent uh very nice melodies uh and he harmonizes them you know, with uh, his incredible technique uh, very well on the guitar. Um, we've got some interesting arrangements with different sections that bring in, you know, various styles and uh, with sort of intro passages and outro sort of things. And he's got a great guitar technique. And so purists may not like this, but uh, I thought it was very adventurous and it kept me... Uh, entertained and enthused for new sounds right to the end yeah adventurous it was um i like the way flamenco guitars make these sound 
burst out of the guitar like it's you know yeah like it just it's can't sort of, stay in yeah. there anymore it's like boom, yeah. you know yeah it's, it's a pretty amazing it's a pretty amazing effect it's kind of like this exploding guitar timbre coming yeah, out of yeah. the uh out of the f hole there yeah <laughs> it's amazing this record was kind of i i enjoyed it i i thought the, the it had so many different styles though i was kind of like trying to work out yeah like what who he was really you know what i mean right. it's it but he's he's all of these things but i think i would have liked to yeah i think these styles could have been spread out over several albums i'm kind right, of wondering right. what he's going to do next i'm kind of curious yeah, i guess i guess we can excuse that because it's his first solo release and so i, I think yeah. i would have liked to have heard something that's just more like that focused more on one style like maybe jazz it would have been interesting to hear flamenco guitars playing Right, jazz all right. the way through but he's got he's not he's never really playing flamenco but he's playing enough flamenco sort of style yeah, at times new flamenco influence things yeah yeah so yeah it was it was it was good i actually <laughs> i should i shouldn't mention this but I, I i heard this album like twice this week once in headphones and i really liked it and then i played it kind of uh in a public place which i'm probably gonna get in trouble for if i mention it so i won't and i thought oh. it was kind of eh, it, it kind of didn't it wasn't really right for that place i thought but it kind of you know, so it's, I think it's more of a, yeah, yeah, um, home listen there. I know what you're saying because I shared this mm. with some uh company that I had, and um, yeah. well, one for one thing, and, and it's no fault of the recording or the choices, but the you know, it the percussion is extremely subtle on here, yeah, and um, so it doesn't create uh, a huge atmosphere, it's it's always in. You know, a support role for the mm. uh, guitar, so it doesn't create a, a huge. Yeah, the guitarist is definitely the star here. Like yeah, nobody yeah, else yeah. gets a chance yeah. you know, to, um, to be heard. Really. So it doesn't create an overwhelming yeah. sort of like mm. uh, you know, listen to me sort of uh, yeah. environment, which is not a bad thing at all. But yeah, an yeah. enjoyable album though. No, nevertheless, I liked it. Yeah, I thought it was unique um, for uh, a first uh, solo endeavor. And mm. uh, encompassing a variety of of styles. Uh, yeah, I just hope I he's like going to pick a theme for his next album. Though I kind of want to hear like yeah, what he's I would do like exploring one theme. I would say yeah, stick with the um, new flamenco jazz influenced uh, mm. kind of thing. Uh, it's, it's an interesting sound, and it's always impressive. Yeah. Like hearing flamenco guitars play, they're really incredible. Yeah, I mean, I think yeah. there's plenty of flamenco guitarists. There's plenty of jazz guitarists, but. Um, you know, to hear something in that, you know, gap in between that's going to be original. Uh, mm. I think uh, this uh, Lubrano, he obviously has the technique. He has the skills on both ends. Uh, can he weave some sort of uh, niche that satisfies uh, whatever listeners come from both end, ends of that spectrum? Ah, he probably can. Um, and uh, Diego, when you... Put some more information uh, out there on the web. It's hard to find anything about you. I know, but than, uh, put something out there in English. Yeah, yeah. Or, <laughs> there's only like two paragraphs of French out there, so um, yeah. Let us know who yeah. you are. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. Okay. Well, I have to say that that's. I'm I'm sorry we're at the end of this program because this was a very enjoyable uh, week of listening to music. I liked everything I heard, and it was great to even talk about it. And now, yeah. Uh, yeah, we we got to take our chances again, but next week we'll have to see what happens. Well, I I think uh, you know coming up uh, next week there's some really interesting stuff in jazz. I've got uh, two. Uh, well, I'll just say 
keyboard classical, but I want to say keyboard. I I won't say even piano. Keyboard based uh, recordings with a big surprise attached to that. Oh, you're Uh, such a tease. You're such such a a tease. tease. And I won't say any more than that. But uh, (laughs) yeah, I think this is going to warrant something special coming up next week. Um, So if you're listening now, you better tune in next week to find out or else you'll be left out and left behind. And you don't want that to happen. I'm as excited as I am listening to Franco Corelli now. Yeah, that's right. And uh, well, (laughs) what shall I say that? From next week, you won't have to just listen to uh, our two voices. Uh, you're going to hear some more things. Well, let's, uh, let's hope so anyway. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, I, I'm uh, pretty sure of that. Um, okay. Anyway, before we get to that and close out, if you've made it this far, uh, come on. Uh, please do leave a comment, a review, a like on whatever platform or app you're listening on uh we really appreciate yeah give uh, us some help we we need it give some help we need it a lot we're getting a lot of listeners all around the world where uh yesterday we just picked up a bunch of listeners in ireland so if you're out there in ireland yeah thanks for listening uh we've got a a bigger following in india after getting on some indian uh only apps so indian listeners and we're thrilled about that. We're That's very really, happy uh, yeah. about that. But we're not getting enough uh, feedback and uh, information from our listeners. So uh, please do uh, subscribe, follow whatever app or platform you're on. Uh, do send us a message at uh, Adult Music Podcast one word at gmail.com. Uh, we we need it's a fight, you know. There's uh, there's more than how many several million podcasts uh, out there now, and uh, in the you have to put yourself into this little category. So we're music and music. Yeah. Commentary. Yeah, none of them are like us. We're like no. yeah, the seven million podcasts. We've got we found something kind of unique. Yeah, something different. But it's hard to get us mm. slotted into the right thing. And uh we we think, you know, we're happy with because we're unique. <laughs> yeah, we're happy with that one percent of people out there who listen to classical and jazz music. We know you're out there in India, Ireland, Argentina, Russia, Romania, uh, all corners of the globe. Uh and we just need to uh, connect to our people. Uh, but do give us some feedback, uh, whatever you want to say, uh, good, bad, indifferent. Uh, we're happy to hear from all of you uh, so we can uh, find out who our audience is. The statistics are cold and hard data. They're very impersonal. And uh, we'd like to get to know who's listening to us and who's listening to music. And remember, yeah, we're stuck here in we're stuck here in Japan. We want to hear from people. We're stuck in here other in Japan. Places. That's right. Um, but uh, do check us out. Uh, whatever platform you're listening on, uh, I think it comes through pretty well on the uh, Apple Podcasts, the playlists. Uh, of course, on Deezer, uh, you'll get the full list of music all the tunes there in one place. If you check us out on our host pod beam, you can get uh, all of the Spotify, Apple, uh, and then the uh, Deezer links as well. If you want to check out in one click, all the music that we talk about uh, each time. So uh, you can check out the albums uh, and listen to them before, or after we talk about them, decide if it's something you'd like to invest in or not. Uh, I think uh, I don't see any other 
people on podcasts making the things accessible. And who else is talking about six albums a week? I don't think anyone. Um, yeah, they're all talking about one, basically. Yeah, one album. Come on, step it up. Step it up, guys. Step it up. <laughs> okay. I guess that's it for this week. We're, we're going to have to leave you. That's, Thank you for uh, listening, episode everybody. Episode 16. We've got to get started listening on the albums yeah, for get next week. On episode 16. And boy, are there some good albums for next week. So. I can tell you from cla- the classical end, there are some. Yeah. And because I've already uh, heard a few of them. Guarantee on the jazz side, too. So this has okay. been episode 16 of this Adult is 16? Music. This is 16. So next week is 17. Okay, so we're going to start working on episode 17 as soon as this recording ends. As soon as it ends, the concepts <laughs> will be laid. The foundation blocks for episode 17. So this has been episode 16 of Adult Music, the podcast with music for the adult mind. And we're going to see you definitely next week. You don't want to miss it because there are going to be links and cues for something greater and more interesting. So... Until then, we'll see you next week and stay tuned.